Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. Welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. Mark Rotenberg is president and executive director of the Electronic Privacy Information Center based out of Washington, D.C. A public interest research group was founded in 1994 focusing on emerging civil liberties issues and privacy protections, First Amendment and constitutional values in this information age. Teaches information privacy law at Georgetown University. He is the editor of Privacy and Human Rights, International Survey of Privacy Laws and Developments, the editor of the forthcoming Privacy in the Modern Age, The Search for Solutions. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me, by the way. Nice to speak with you. I I have to include this. He was included in the Law Dragon 500. The Law Dragon. It sounds like it should be a TV show. What does that mean? Well, it's a listing of uh, legal law- leading lawyers in the United States, although I agree with you, it sounds more like a TV show. <laughs> also, I like this. Your brother founded the Boston Computer Society? What was that? Yeah, I think it is pretty cool. I learned a lot from my younger brother. He actually started the Boston Computer Society when he was uh, 13 in the late 1970s. At one point, it was the largest computer association in the world. Uh, they had about 40,000 members and 30 publications. Uh, Apple introduced the Macintosh computer at a BCS meeting in Boston in 1983. So Jonathan taught me a lot about uh, organizing. About organizing. I thought you were going to tell me he taught you about the digital age and privacy. There must have been some of that, I guess, the first inklings of that sort of thinking. Well, that too, actually. I mean, Both my brother and I, when we were growing up, we were very interested in technology and had a dad who really encouraged it. Um, I remember he would bring home one of the old four-function LED calculators, which seemed really cool at the time. And uh, we learned a lot about computers at a young age. Of course, like most people who end up in Washington, I had this strong desire to go to law school, so the useful stuff in computer science kind of got counterbalanced by the law school stuff that I eventually picked up. One other personal thing? Sure. Chess. Oh, yeah. You're a big chess player. I'm a big chess player. Actually, it's part of my uh, ties to computer science. When I was um, growing up, I played a lot of chess. I played a lot of tournament chess. And as I got a little bit more into computers, I became very interested in you know game algorithms and computer design and um, all that stuff. I mean, it's kind of frustrating, of course, because now there's free software out there that can beat me. So it seems like a lot of time was wasted learning how to play chess. But it's also interesting for me in my work in the privacy field today because, of course, big data has emerged as a big privacy topic. And I hear people talk a lot about big data, but I also remember you know, from my early days looking at some of the trade-offs between um, strong algorithms and brute force searches and thinking about what the ramifications might be today as we think more and more about the collection use of personal information. Yeah, but it also sounds like you just like playing, like you're encouraging kids in uh, D.C. schools to play chess. Yeah, well, that's that's kind of a thing on the side. But I do think uh, that for young people, um, 
chess is actually a really good activity, and it's a really good activity, you know, across culture and race and gender. Um, it's an easy way, you know, for kids to interact and, and learn something that's got some logic to it and is not, you know, tech-heavy or super expensive. So I've actually spent a lot of time over the last few years uh, working with the U.S. Uh, chess Center in Washington, D.C. to try to promote chess in the D.C. public schools. My wife is a public school teacher, and we both think it's just a great um, activity for kids. Hmm. Do you ever find that uh, the interest in chess crosses over the table and some of the people you're trying to convince uh, privacy issues are important might might see some relevance there through, through the language of chess? Yeah, you know, I've thought about that over the years. I think there are some people, I mean, people a whole lot smarter than me who figured out how chess may apply in, you know, areas of business involving management or strategic thinking. I don't know that it's, you know, directly related to the public policy work that I do, but I do know that having um, learned a fair amount of chess and particularly about the role of computers in chess, as I said, it's made me think a little bit more about some of these current issues, um, you know, related to big data. And I guess the other thing maybe is somewhat uh, almost directly opposed to my chess experience. While chess almost always has a winner and a loser, or, or maybe it's it's a tie, I'm very much of the belief that in the world of public policy, we need to find non-zero-sum solutions. And I'm always pushing back on people who say, we need to balance privacy with national security. We need to figure out the trade-off between privacy and the First Amendment. And uh, I will typically say in those discussions, no, actually, you need both privacy and national security. You need to protect privacy and the First Amendment. And, you know, chess, like many games, produces zero-sum outcomes, but I don't think public policy uh, needs to have the same result. Of course, that's the tough part, doing both of those things. Um, when did privacy become, can I say passion, a passion yeah. for you? Well, you know, it's very personal in, in some ways. I was um, in Washington in the early 1980s. I had gra- just graduated college. I had some background in computer science, but I was also very interested in working with nonprofit organizations. And I started a group in D.C. called the Public Interest Computer Association. And what I was trying to do, somewhat like my uh, brother before me, was help people understand how to use new computer technology. I was um, designing uh, databases on a KPRO2 using a program, a CPM program called DBase2. And uh, I actually think I put together the first human rights uh, database. Uh, it was for the ACLU Immigration Project, and they were tracking uh, human rights violations in El Salvador and trying to um, establish a legal basis for what was then called extended voluntary departure, I think kind of a form of asylum. And so we would get these reports from church groups in Central America, and we would code them and classify them and put them into a database and use them to support uh, these asylum applications. And I was writing all the software um, in DBase2. We didn't even have a word wrap feature back then. We had to figure out how to insert carriage returns. Um, but it was, you know, it was kind of fun and interesting. The world was also really simple in those days. I cannot get over, you know, going to an app store today. I'm just overwhelmed. I mean, in a sub-subcategory, there are like 
300 different, you know, health, fitness, uh, heart rate uh, programs. You know, back in the early day, back in the early days of, of microcomputers, there were pretty much, you know, 10 programs, and that was it. You know, you had two or three word processing programs, two or three spreadsheet programs, um, a couple database programs, and some communication software. So it was pretty easy in those days to know almost everything about everything. Um, now you, you couldn't even begin to do that. In, in terms of privacy issues, when you look at those app stores and you see yeah. all that information being amassed, does your head sometimes start to explode? <laughs> well, I, I hope not, but actually, you know, your question, I guess, gets me back to what you were asking originally. See, the other thing that was going on in the early 1980s for me with the Public Interest Computer Association was we were also trying to encourage people to think about the social consequences of computer technology and it was literally on the eve of 1984, right? So actually there was a lot of discussion um, in Washington around that time, you know, was Orwell right? You know, will he be right in 10 years? You know, what are the implications of uh, computing on privacy? So in that sense, I guess my timing was good and I worked closely uh, with the ACLU and some members of Congress, actually Senator Leahy, who I ended up working for after I graduated from law school, uh, talking about how to update the Federal Wiretap Act. And I think part of what was important for me at the time was the sense that we needed to use the technology, we needed to understand the technology, and we also needed to assess the technology. I didn't have a view that said, um, you know, we should be scared of computers or we shouldn't allow computers to collect our data, that just seemed to me that w that was not going to be a very practical solution. So we've always been um, about using the technology, about using the internet, but also thinking seriously about the consequences and how to try to address them. I was thinking as I was researching this, I was thinking about human rights, homelessness, health care, economic growth, violence. Do all those uh, touch on privacy issues in a way that that don't just affect social policy but concern you? Yeah, uh, they do in many, many areas. I mean, I can think of some areas, you know, that, that don't touch upon privacy, which maybe helps us understand where the line might be. I mean, you get into the world of big data and you start talking about uh, ubiquitous sensory networks. And I will say to people, listen, I mean, if you're checking uh, salinity in oceans because you're interested in climate change, that sounds, you know, great and it's kind of hard to imagine where the privacy issues are there um, because a lot of that is simply climate research. Um, you can look at, you know, uh, pollution levels in major metropolitan cities. And again, these are not really privacy issues. But at the point that you start to track individual vehicles or you're recording the electricity that a particular person is using in their home, then I think the analysis changes a little bit. Uh, you might still have very good reasons to be concerned about environmental impact and you're trying to assess how do we do a better job you know, solving that problem. But I think you also have to recognize that you're now in a space where you're beginning to learn a lot about what particular people do. And um, I think they, in those situations, do have some rights to say, well, hang on just a moment. I mean, is, you know, is it necessary, for example, to know that this is activity about me? Can we aggregate this data or anonymize the data in some way, much like the census data, you know, which provides lots of useful information for 
uh, planning purposes and political purposes, but doesn't directly implicate um, a person's private life. Would that be your model, the census? As much as possible. Um, it's the type of zero-sum solution, you know, we will point to, and we will say, you know, it's not about limiting the data collection. It's about finding ways to gather data that don't impact people directly in an adverse way. And I think this is a big, edu big issue today, for example, in education, uh, because so many schools in this country have become very data intensive, and they're gathering so much information about, about students. Now, some of this information, I'm sure, is quite useful in evaluating the effectiveness of particular programs and, and teachers and even applications. So I don't think we would say, you know, don't gather the data, but I think we would say if you're gathering the data in a way that's personally identifiable to a particular student, then we're going to need some safeguards. Because the other thing we've come to see about a lot of these um, new programs is that the data is often repurposed. It's, you know, repurposed um, typically for commercial reason. And you might say, well, we're gathering data to evaluate an educational program, and people say, well, that sounds fine. And then you're saying, well, actually, we can use this data for, you know, marketing some new educational uh, activity. Well, that's not exactly what we agreed to. I'm now thinking from the school's perspective when we said we would collect the data. The same thing happens in health research. I mean, people make very compelling cases for gathering medical data to solve important problems in medical science, and I don't think anyone wants to block that. But, you know, the next, the next step, of course, is some new um, application or some new product or some new marketing technique that's entirely about um, using personal information about individuals for commercial purpose, not the original research purpose. Of course, we see that every day now. I mean, when I go to Facebook, I know I've opted in somewhere, but uh, I see targeted ads all the time. They're gathering my data and using it, using my, my pathways through the Internet to target me. Right, but I think it's very, very important to respect those choices that users make. And Facebook is a real uh, example of, of the need to enforce legal standards against companies that make certain representations. And people say, well, this looks kind of cool. I can exchange information with my friends, my family. I see some privacy settings. I'm going to choose some privacy settings. And this is how people understand the interaction. And then Facebook comes along and says, well, you know, actually we've got something really cool. We think you'll like it. We're going to change your privacy settings a little bit, make your personal information a little bit more public. And, of course, if you're not happy about that, then you can go back in and set your privacy setting back to the way it was. And my view is that's completely unfair. Um, and I don't think you should go, well, what did you expect? It's Facebook. It's the Internet. You put your information online. You should get used to it. I have almost the opposite reaction. I mean, my reaction is if Facebook can't manage the business the way it offered it, you know, it should be shut down. So, <laughs> you know, we go to the Federal Trade Commission. We file complaints because uh, we think companies uh, should be held accountable for the representations they make to users. Mm. Let me go back to that chess analogy for a little bit that you gave or, uh, and talk about national security and the First Amendment. Like I, I mentioned, that I talked to the journalist Shane Harris. He wrote about cyber war yeah. in at war, and he, and he wrote about how um, this military Internet complex is has been created. The Googles, the, the AT&T, all these other companies are working very closely and, and, and 
in some ways were forced to work very closely with the government on sharing data, providing backdoors. Um, argument being, you know, we have to balance, as you said, national security and First Amendment. How do we how do we not balance it but have national security and still have our privacy protections? So I was involved in a lot of these debates after 9-11. You know, I was debating the FBI director and people at the NSA and elsewhere, members of Congress I was debating. And, you know, oftentimes the debate was titled, you know, striking the balance between privacy and security or between, you know, security and liberty or, or something like that. And as I did this, I started to think, you know, this is really much more about a counterbalance. In other words, in a constitutional democracy, it may be the case that the government needs certain authorities to investigate crime, to protect national security. But the way we make that possible in our form of government is to set up a counterbalance, a means of oversight and accountability, to see that those authorities are not misused. And that's, in fact, what typically distinguishes uh, constitutional democracy from other forms of government, because if you have a totalitarian government or an authoritarian government, that's really not a requirement. The government claims uh, powers, and it uses those powers as it sees fit, and it constantly tells people that it's doing these things uh, to protect them. But you're not allowed to do that uh, here, at least not in theory. So when the claims are made uh, to expand national security authority, our reaction is oftentimes, okay, if you need more wiretap authority or if you need more surveillance authority, what will the oversight mechanisms be? Where will the public reports be available? What type of judicial review will you have? How can we tell um, if these new powers that you're uh, seeking to obtain will be used effectively? How will you measure that? I mean, these are the kinds of questions that I think actually produce uh, better outcomes. Many of the proposals for national security actually create new forms of risk. If you say, for example, we're going to retain lots and lots of data on communications activity uh, because that may help us anticipate future crime, and I imagine in some scenarios that's probably true, I think you also have to consider the risk that when you choose to maintain lots and lots of data, you create a new vulnerability that others can exploit because now you have to consider what happens, you know, if your adversary gets access to all those communication records or if someone internal in your organization misuses those records. And those are the hard kinds of questions that government agencies typically like to avoid. I mean, they see a real risk, and I actually don't um, – tend to argue with them about that. There are real risks out there, and there's no doubt that our networks are, are constantly under attack from foreign adversaries. But I don't think that alone is sufficient justification for a government agency to say, therefore, we need to keep everyone's telephone records, or therefore, we need the ability to monitor all private communications. Because I think the next step in the process is to start asking some of those hard questions and to say, and this is the thing that really upsets them, of course, until you can answer the hard questions, you actually don't get the authorities. You don't get the ability to do the things you want to do um, because you haven't established uh, that they're necessary and appropriate. Well, where have you, where have you seen the, um, the collection of data uh, follow those uh, responses in a way that you think is, um, is proper, is well, being done well? 
You know, of course, my field is uh, privacy, and, and I've been studying and teaching and writing for many years. I'm oftentimes amazed by, you know, some of the laws we passed in this country. The Federal Wiretap Act of 1968, now almost 50 years old, um, was the first time Congress had authorized electronic uh, surveillance, but it's a remarkable law. The number of safeguards, mechanisms, uh, types of accountability built into the original Federal Wiretap Act, it's like the high water moment for privacy protection in the United States. And you understand in part why Congress did that, because in passing the law, they said that electronic surveillance should be an, an investigative means of last resort. And the law reflects that spirit. You literally have to establish that you tried other investigative techniques and that they failed and that therefore you chose to use electronic surveillance. And then there are all sorts of other um, you know, hoops you have to go through to get that kind of authority. Now, the difference between that act and the proposals that came out after 9-11 and the various new surveillance authorities we have today could not be more stark because increasingly you have people in the intelligence community who say, we don't know exactly what's going to work. We just know we need to try to do everything and figure out afterwards what does work. And it's not the right approach, I think. But, but you know, in 1968, the world was a much different place. And now everything is, is in these devices. And so they just want to be, they would argue, we want to be in there at the forefront, not not knocking on somebody's door while they're on the Internet. Well, that's a, that's a really good point. But in my mind, you know, I'm not a historian, but I would think that the world in 1968 was actually a much scarier place. I mean, if you think about it, in the 1960s, you know, it's the midst of the Cold War. We have an adversary, a superpower with nuclear weapons that are targeted toward the United States. There had been presidential assassinations. There was an enormous amount of civil unrest in the United States, an enormous amount of public protest. And nonetheless, in the midst of all this you know, chaos and craziness and genuine threats to national security, both the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Congress said, we're going to protect privacy. We're going to do it through constitutional means. We're going to do it through very strong uh, legislative means. Now here we are, you know, post 9-11 with still this sense of fear in the U.S., which seems kind of odd to me by way of contrast, prepared to give away so many of these safeguards and so many of these freedoms uh, that had been established during much more difficult times. And I actually have some sympathy, I guess, for the, you know, the people in the U.S. who look back to the the foundings and, and the tradition of liberty associated with the U.S. Revolution. I mean, if people in times of great difficulty uh, can fight so hard to uh, establish such important liberties, I mean, who are we to give away such things? Well, what would you, so you had, you got to be the wand waver. Uh, you know that there are threats. You see the way data uh, could be collected. What would what would give, make you feel secure and yet freedoms protected? And consider again the, you know, the cyber attacks, people trying to gather up data, people trying to disrupt the country, launch attacks. I'd like to see a lot more transparency and a lot more accountability. I mean, it is a paradox of privacy, but one of the best ways we protect privacy is by making those organizations that collect personal information publicly accountable 
And I think if any company or any federal agency has information about you, you should have an absolute right to know what that information is, how it's used, and oftentimes to say to them, you know, stop it. I mean, I didn't give you that information. You don't have the right to keep that information about me. You should uh, literally delete it. Um, I think it's an approach to privacy that becomes increasingly more important in an age where we're told, you know, just get used to it, accept it. I don't think we need to um, accept it at all. Uh, last May, the European Union ruled that individual requests, search engines must delete links to personal information deemed inadequate, irrelevant, or no longer relevant. And it's the article I'm, I'm quoting from said, privacy advocates are hailing the ruling, but others warn of censorship. And so there's this debate over the right to be forgotten. Where do, where do you come down on that? Yeah. I was really um, happy about the decision of the European Court of Justice earlier this year. I know in some corners it was a controversial opinion, but essentially what the uh, European Court of Justice did was to say to search companies that are providing easy access to you know, private information, uh, old information, adverse information, personal information, um, in some circumstances, you may be required to take down links to that information. It's not that the information itself is destroyed or that a news organization is limited in what it can publish. It's rather that large search companies like Google, which clearly profit from making these personal details widely available, need in some cases to respect a fundamental right to privacy. It was a, you know, a great decision, widely hailed decision. Now, of course, for Google, it's problematic. I mean, that's certainly true, and they have been pushing back and raising questions and, you know, trying to work with their um, allies to make people think that this is an assault on the Internet and on freedom of speech. I don't think it is at all. Uh, Google, in fact, itself routinely uh, takes down links to people's um, bank accounts, uh, credit card information, because they know there's really no basis for arguing that those links shouldn't come down. But they also think of privacy in a very narrow way. They think, well, those are the kinds of links that could create some financial harm for somebody. But of course, privacy is not just about the financial harm that can be done to people. It's the stigmatizing impact, it's the effect on employment, and all sorts of other opportunities that might otherwise be denied. So um, I think it's a, it's a very interesting decision. I also think it's a reminder sometimes that when we think about privacy, people get very fatalistic and they say, oh, you know, privacy's gone. Uh, you know, it's great that you're fighting those fights, but kind of be serious. And uh, then along come these just remarkable you know, remarkable court decisions, not only Europe, by the way. I mean, we had the decision this year from the U.S. Supreme Court in the cell phone privacy case. Uh, we spent a lot of time working on that case. We wrote a long brief. You know, I try to be cautiously optimistic, and I told my students who thought that we didn't really have a chance, that we might, you know, stitch together some narrow 6-3 or 5-4 majority. And then out comes this unanimous opinion, you know, from the court, authored by the Chief Justice, one of the most uh, extraordinary uh, constitutional defenses of the right to privacy in the history of the United States. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, wow, I mean, if ever there was a reminder uh, that these battles are worth fighting, here it is. 
And um, it happens, you know, not always, um, and probably not often enough. But you look at the opinion from the European Court of Justice on the right to be forgotten. You look at the opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court on cell phone privacy. They're just a few months apart. Um, 2014 actually turned out to be a pretty good year. Hmm. I noticed that you were uh, quoted in the, uh, the discussion of Uber. You said you do have some sense that some line was crossed this week. It's about what they know about the customer, what they intend to know about the customer, and how they intend to use that information. And the picture that emerges is incredibly creepy. Uh, what was Uber doing, and I guess what does it tell you about how data is being collected today? Well, you know, I think part of what happened with Uber recently was the realization of the enormous power that people have when they begin to um, see over the private lives of others. I mean, you've got an executive at this rapidly growing company who has a problem with a reporter that's writing critically about the company. Um, it's not a new problem, and many companies face this, and they deal with it in different ways. But he makes an offhand comment to someone at a dinner, which apparently had actually thought through a bit, that they would uh, investigate um, this reporter's private life, try to figure out what was going on with her that they might be able to hold against her or, or you know, shut her down. That's um, a kind of intimidation tactic that's really chilling. And then the other part of the story that came out this week was that Uber apparently has the ability to track all of its uh, customers in real time. Uh, they call this the God view. And they use this in a couple of instances, I think, you know, to try to show how well run they are. But I think for others, it was also kind of a chilling feeling about the power of this company. You know, it's, a, it's an odd thing about privacy. I mean, typically in, in the old days, you know, you get into a cab, you sit with a stranger, go across town, get out of the cab, and that was it. I mean, it was like a conversation. You, you know, it, it was over when it was over. Now, of course, what Uber is doing, and it's entirely a data-driven model, is collecting information about people, using that information to provide a new service. But it doesn't end when the service is over. It continues, and it builds increasingly detailed profiles of people's private lives. Um, I read also recently that Uber has the ability pretty much by tracking the time and location of trips to figure out when people are taking trips for, you know, one-night stands because they're going, you know, late at night, leaving early the next morning, and it's a location that doesn't appear very often in their profile, and that's um, an inference you can now make from going through uh, Uber's data. And I thought, wow, that's um, also interesting. You know, you watch these TV shows that are on now, uh, 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 Person of Interest. Uh, there's another one, too, about, about these uh, computer geniuses. Uh, you watch those, and it becomes, like, commonplace. This is how we operate today. Um, what's your biggest fear about sort of the way the public does perceive their own place in this, in this digital world? Well, I, first of all, I should say, you know, people who know me know that I, I don't really like the word fear. I, I don't talk in terms of fear. I don't talk in terms of concern. I think we have challenges and problems, but I think, you know, challenges and problems require solutions. So we're always thinking... As opposed, as opposed to fears? I mean, are you well, saying this is about a mindset? 
I'm saying, you know, fear is, is very disempowering for people. It makes people feel that there's little they can do. You know, unfortunately, Orwell's 1984 left us with this legacy of fatalism because people think about technology and surveillance and they think, well, at some point this is simply the way the world is going to be. And I explained that, you know, when I read 1984, I didn't read it as a prediction. I read it as a challenge as a warning, in fact, that if you don't act today, you know, this is what the future looks like. And, you know, coming back to that theme, when I think about people today, you know, I want them to be engaged. I want them to feel that it is information about them, uh, that they have the right to control, that they shouldn't give up. I mean, even if they're not too concerned for their own privacy, they should think in terms of their spouse or their children or their parents. Uh, there's a lot happening with a collection use of personal data that has a big impact on people's lives. And uh, we need to think about this not only in terms of our own self-interest. I mean, privacy, unfortunately, I think tends to isolate people sometimes if they think about it only in terms of only their interest, but we actually need to think about it as a, as a social interest, as a public interest. It's something that you know, everyone uh, should have the right to and, and something that I think we need to respect. Mark Rotenberg, thank you. Sure, it's nice speaking with you. Mark Rotenberg, President and Executive Director of the Electronic Privacy Information Center, EPIC, a public interest research group out of Washington, D.C. that focuses on civil liberties and privacy in the information age. He is editor of the forthcoming Privacy in the Modern Age, The Search for Solutions, from the New Press, due out in 2015. Rotenberg was in Seattle to give a lecture, Watching the Watchers, Fighting Back in an Age of Ubiquitous Surveillance. His talk was sponsored by the Graduate School at the University of Washington, along with the UW Alumni Association, the Henry Art Gallery, the Center for Digital Arts and Experimental Media, School of Law, Department of Communication, and the Information School. Thanks for listening to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. This program is supported by the University of Washington Alumni Association.